We'll be talking about the impact of gun violence in this podcast. If this is a difficult topic for you, please take care when listening. We're at Columbine High School right now. I'm here with Mr. Tom Tonelli. He was my teacher at Columbine. Down here, this will take us to the cafeteria, right? This is our cafeteria. I was over here under a table, literally right by those front doors. There's windows all around our cafeteria. And it really hasn't changed. And Coach Sanders was right on the top of the stairs right there on that landing, telling us like where the shooters were to get down. But when I was running out, the last I had seen of him, he was running up the stairs. And I vividly remember watching him run up the stairs. And that was the last time I saw Dave. This was the entrance over here to the library. You know, that's where we lost so many lives that day. But um, the new library is really beautiful. It's a beautiful library. It's huge. You use it all the time. Good. They opened up the ceiling of, you know, where the library used to be, and it's beautiful paintings and pictures. Aren't they beautiful? Yeah. It's almost like looking at the sky. And that, in loving memory of all the victims, Columbine High School, April 20th, 1999, will always be in our hearts and minds. Is it strange or hard or? You know, my anxiety is a little up right now, you know, especially walking past the library. And I mean, like, it's hard to breathe a little bit right now. And I understand. Yeah. But after 21 years, like, I come back here and it still feels like home. My name is Amy Over. And this is Confronting Columbine. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome back to Confronting Columbine. I'm Nancy Glass here with Amy Over. Amy, you stayed close with your high school principal, a man who was there that day, Frank DeAngelis, right? Right, I did. Mr. D is what we call him. He is the guy you see on TV. Uh, He's kind, wise, patient, and accessible. We're all 40 now, and we still call him with our problems. I have him literally in my cell phone. Um, And he takes my calls whenever, whenever I call. He really was the guy you all turned to when this happened, wasn't he? He was. 2,000 kids, we had no idea how to act, respond, or even grieve. And he showed us the way. Well, let's go back to Columbine High. You're going to meet the principal, Mr. D, and a teacher, Tom Tonelli. I am with my former principal, Mr. Frank DeAngelis. I know I'm going to cry. <laughs> I'm already crying. Uh, it's been a long 21 years. Yeah. You know, I can't speak for the whole class in 1999, but that first year was rough. I mean, Columbine was my home, and I had so many amazing memories there. 
If you would have told any of us that a Columbine could have happened at Columbine, we would have said, no, this yeah. school is unreal. And I had spent 20 years there. And I remember when my secretary ran in and said, there's a report of gunfire. First thing I said, this has to be a senior prank. We're literally a month and two days from you guys graduating. All of a sudden we run out of my office and my worst nightmare became a reality. Everything just seemed to slow down. So I thought I walked very calmly, but Mr. Leib and my secretary said, I just sprinted down the hallway towards the gunman. Police said, why did you do that? And I said, there's one reason. There were about 25 girls that were coming out of the locker room to go to class. They had no idea. They were laughing and joking. They would have been dead. And so I ran towards them and I said, we have to go. I remember that gun was about the size of a cannon. And I remember the trophy case, shots being fired, and the gunman is coming around the corner and girls are screaming. And I got him down that little hallway where the gymnasium yeah. was. Pull on the door, it's locked. I had 30 keys on that key ring. So we literally were trapped. But what saved us was Dave Sanders. He was coming down the hallway and the gunman, he saw Mr. Sanders, so he turned around, stopped momentarily and shot Mr. Sanders in the back of the head. And I pulled out that key and it opened. That one key. As principal, Frank DeAngelis had about 30 keys to the building. With the gymnasium doors locked, he would have to act quickly to get the girls to safety. The gunmen were distracted for a moment. In a stroke of luck, Mr. DeAngelis picked the one key that opened the gym doors. It was a miracle that he chose the right key. The doors opened and they escaped. And so if Mr. Sanders didn't come up, we probably would have been trapped there and all dead. He was a hero. He saved us, he saved my life. I can remember as the day ended, one of the most difficult things, and it haunts me to this day, after I helped the police, they transported me down to Leewood Elementary. That's where they were bringing the kids from Columbine on the bus to meet with their parents. And so I was in the gymnasium, it's eight o'clock at night, and unfortunately I had a teacher come up and he had blood all over. And I said, what's that? And he said, this is Dave Sanders' blood. I think he's dead. As the night went on, there's maybe 100 people left in the gymnasium and parents were coming over. And I had been there for 20 years. You know, I taught and coached and parents were coming over and saying, Frank, did you see my son or daughter? And I said, no, I had not. Father actually went and stuck his head out the door and he said, Frank, there's been yellow school buses that have been coming here continuously for the past four hours. There's no more buses. No more survivors were coming. It became clear to the grief counselors what had to be done. Frank was instructed to inform the parents and remaining family members that the missing children were probably never coming home. I was never prepared for it. How did you find the words to talk to us after the shooting? Like, how did you find the courage to stand up there and talk with us? I had no idea. I was just in shock and I was feeling so much guilt. And I'm a person of faith. And I said, God, just give me the words. And all of a sudden, they called my name. And I remember you guys just standing up and people are crying. And I don't know if you remember, but I turned my back. I couldn't even face it. And mm -hmm. I was, I mean, I was just taken with emotion. And I turned around and all of a sudden I looked at you and I got this strength. It was one of the toughest things. And I remember government officials being there and I looked away from them, but I saw my kids there. You did. And then it was two days later that we set up shop over at West Bulls Community Church. They had counselors for all the students. They did. And so one of the counselors come over and said, Mr. D, your kids need to see you. I said, I have nothing to give. I'm drained. I haven't eaten in two days. I haven't slept. I said, I am not very good for anyone right now. They said, please come with me. So I walk into that auditorium and you kids all stand up and you start chanting, yep. we love you, Mr. D. Mm -hmm. We love you, Mr. D. And we're Columbine. 
I start crying and I turn my back again and the counselor whips me around. He said, there's been kids uncertain how to feel. And by you showing emotion, you gave them permission. And they gave me the strength. You let us feel what we needed to feel. Like you gave us that okay to cry and to grieve. That was powerful because I was so angry. Yeah. And I was confused and sad and you gave us hope. I remember at our 10th class reunion, you got up and spoke. And um, you said you always worried about our class. And like, I just, that's made me sad that you've worried about us for so many years. You were the ones that left me. We didn't want to leave. No, I know. <laughs> we didn't and, want and, to leave at all. It was so difficult because the last memories that you had were running out of that school. And they allowed you to go back in to get backpacks, but you never saw the classrooms. You were on your own. Yeah. Mass shootings weren't a thing. You, like, I think you guys did an amazing job of taking care of us. We were making all these decisions. And they said, well, when do we go back to school? Well, we couldn't go back in the building because if you would have saw the damage to that building, because the SWAT team comes in and there were bullet holes everywhere. Yeah. And it was so crazy. They finally said, the FBI said, are you ready to go in the library? And I said, I need to know how my kids died. Yeah. And I remember spending two hours in the library. In Columbine's library, homework and college applications were left out. Calculators were left on and books were left open. 10 of the 13 murder victims were shot there. Most were found under tables where they had been hiding from the gunmen. It was also the location where the perpetrators killed themselves. It was still a crime scene and they explained how every kid died. And then it was only a few weeks later and then we graduated. It was May 22nd. Mm -hmm. It was two days after President Clinton came and we had 14,000 people at Fiddler's Green, and it was broadcast live around the country. Lauren Townsend was a valedictorian. Lauren Townsend was the ninth murder victim killed in the library. She was a champion volleyball player and a brilliant student. Deeply rooted in faith, Lauren seemed to have a premonition about an early death. A passage in her diary read, I do think humanity is losing touch with itself and their relationship with their surroundings. Unfortunately, it usually takes a huge trauma to get people to realize what is important. And I feel that it's going to happen to wake up everyone to get in touch with their spiritual sides. I'm not afraid of death, for it is only a transition. For in the end, all there is is love. The class of 1999's graduation was joyful, and heartbreaking. I remember it was a beautiful ceremony. And Lauren, her mom and her stepdad came up there to get the diploma, or I handed it to them, but it was just, it was so surreal. Along the way, you have learned how precious life can be. You have learned to value each day one student delivered these moving words. Because of what occurred on April 20th, I must recognize what I have learned. To love deeply and to appreciate every word and every gesture of every person I love or will love. Frank, how did you do after we were gone? When I knew I was really screwed up, it was right around uh, what well, was 4th of July and I went to a Rockies game. It was a 4th July game. The fireworks display went off, and I had a meltdown. I mean, I literally got in a fetal position. I mean, the fireworks, and it just brought me back. Trauma has a weird way of creeping up into your life when you least expect it. Whoa, Memorial Day! 
Well, that means summer is here, and if you're struggling to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body. That's B-O-D-I, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so of every day, dedicated to my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake, and then I go crush a workout from one of the 120 programs on the Body app and just follow along day by day. So here's my special offer to you. Because it's Memorial Day and I want you to get started now, the next 5,000 new subscribers who sign up for six months get the next six months free. That's full access to over 120 programs. So don't wait. See how fast the pounds can really come off. And if they don't, you can get your money back, no questions asked. Just go to body.com to buy six months and get the next six free. That's B-O-D-I dot com. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. You know, what always bothered me was all the things that the press said about us. I want to set the record straight, you know, like there is something special about Columbine. And that was one of the most difficult things for me because the students and staff said, Mr. D, the media, these are lies, but I was named in eight lawsuits. And so the attorneys are saying, you can't say anything. And I had to sit there as all these lies about you and the athletes and others. Yep. And they were outright lies and how these kids were bullied. And that message has to be they were not. They weren't. I mean, the one kid idolized Adolf Hitler. When I saw those basement tapes, he said, there are people at Columbine that are weak and they deserve to die. It's all about survival of the fittest. The infamous basement tapes. Five weeks before the Columbine massacre, the perpetrators created a chilling series of videotapes explaining their crimes. They recorded themselves talking about all the people they wanted to destroy. They described their murder fantasies in disturbing and graphic detail, relishing the carnage. The videos were clear evidence of their criminal conspiracy to commit mass murder. They also left superficial apologies to their parents killers were playing to the camera and provided important information to law enforcement about the relationship dynamics between them. The media was hungry to get their hands on the tapes, so they filed lawsuits. But law enforcement felt differently. They were concerned about the public ever seeing them. He would say, we need to kill that kid because he mispronounces. It should be espresso, and they say espresso. He deserves to die. And this kid, I'm in this class, and he makes me laugh, and I can't wait until I kill him. And one of the things that turned my stomach, they went up to Rampart Range, and they purchased those guns, and they were up there, and I'll never forget it. They had a bowling pin, and they put it on a tree stump, and they had just purchased these guns illegally. And they're firing the guns, and they're laughing. And he said, can you imagine what that's gonna feel like when that's some kid's brain exploding? And this was in the film. And one of the most taunting things was right before they left, they were doing their farewell. And he's dressing up in the vest and the whole thing. And he's quoting Shakespeare and he said, Mom and Dad, we're sorry you're going to be blamed for this. But you were good parents. We're just evil kids. And goodbye. And the camera goes off. That's when they get in their car and drive to Columbine High School. The quote from Shakespeare came from Eric Harris. It was from Shakespeare's The Tempest. Good wombs have borne bad sons. They did it in the parents' basement. This kid was a psychopath. Mm -hmm. And this really sounds weird, but we're fortunate. But if those bombs would have went off, it would have killed six to 700 people. Yeah. 
No, these were two evil, evil kids. Yeah. You know, and the thing that just weighs on my mind because I saw pictures of them when they were growing up. I mean, missing teeth. Then I saw the kid pointing a gun at me and I said, what happened? When they took their own lives, they took a lot of those answers to the grave with them mm -hmm. and we'll never know. So the media played the scenes from the cafeteria over and over again. Was there any other footage in the school that wasn't released to the public? If you ever see footage that they're saying that that's film of the actual shooting in the library, that's not. Because there were two cameras in the building. One was in the cafeteria. I said, I'm watching people that leave food on the table. Mm -hmm. And the other was outside just to see the senior parking lot. Yeah. There's people out there. I get a phone call. It was the school resource officer. He said, Frank, I thought you said there were no cameras. I said, there wasn't. Well, there's some guy saying he's got actual footage of kids dying in the library. I said, that's not it. So the guy, he said, come here. Guy gets on the phone. He said, who are you? And I said, I'm the principal. And he said, what are you saying? I said, what you have is not what the film was. It was black grainy film. They're showing colored pictures. And I said, that's not. I know you're a person of faith, but did you ever stop believing? I'm a cradle Catholic. First time in my life, I was questioning my faith. And I said, how could there be a God when I just witnessed, you know, all this horrific things that happened? And Father Ken Leone called me and he said, Frank, you need to come down to the church. So I walk into St. Francis Cabrini and there's about 1,200 people in the sacristy. And he said, Mr. D, come up on the altar. And we both start crying. It was like something descended upon him. And he whispered something. He said, Frank, you should have died that day. He said, God's got a plan for you. Now you need to go rebuild that community. And then he quoted, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And he said, God's going to allow you to finish. Your community needs you right now and don't ever give up hope. Because there were some nights I'd come home, I'd, you know, I'd get to school and work, you know, 15, 16 hours. It was easy for me to go downstairs and get a glass of whiskey. And I said, I can't do this because I need to be there for everybody. And it, it was tough. I mean, I would have a hard time carrying on a conversation with people eye to eye because I felt so much guilt. Well, and unfortunately, it cost me a marriage. I come home one night and my wife, I'd been married for 18 years, she said, you're not the man I married. And I said, you're right. I got myself into counseling. And when I said, you need to come in, he'll explain what's going on. She said, I don't understand. You're not that same person. You're the one screwed up, I'm not. Well, the thing that hurt me the most is my daughter, she was a sophomore, class of 2001, so she was a sophomore over at Thunder Ridge. And so my wife, every night I came home, she'd tell my daughter, oh, guess what, dad's home, guess what we're gonna talk about? Columbine, Columbine, Columbine. And that's the last thing I need to hear. Yeah. So I'd come home when they were sleeping, I'd leave before they got up. Well, that didn't work well. So one night I come home and my daughter is crying and she said, dad, remember how you told me I'm always gonna be daddy's little girl? I'm not your little girl anymore. It's all those kids from Columbine and they're hugging you and you're loving them. What about me? I'm your daughter. Wow. And that broke my heart. Things were going well until five years ago. She calls me up. She said, you're not my dad, you're Frank. And I haven't talked to her in five years. I'm sorry, Frank. And so and I look at it and I apologized. I said, Haley, I did the best I could. I, you know, I apologize. I didn't know. And she was so hurt by that. And she's well, two years younger than you. She's 38. Mm -hmm. I got a grandchild I haven't met yet. There is a cost. It's just we feel we want to help others. It's hard. It, I'm not going to lie. It's tough when you hear from a new survivor and they're telling you their struggles. I mean, my heart just drops for them. But I've got to help. It's my way of coping with Columbine as well. It's my way to heal, too, is to help others. And that's all I know to do. It was a hard lesson for me. And I remarried, a good story to the divorce, I ended up marrying my high school sweetheart. After the shooting, I received probably 4,000 cards. I was gonna read 25 cards a night, you know, until I got through 4,000. And most of them were very, you know, 
thinking of you, da 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 da. But there were some death threats made on me and things. And so my counselor said, Frank, you don't need this right now. You got other things. So I put the cards away. So now 2002, going through a divorce, and my wife at the time moved out. And I go in this basement downstairs and I just pull out this box of cards. First card I pulled out was from my high school sweetheart. We dated back. She was a junior and I was senior. She sent me a card in April of 99. It had been sitting in that box for three years. So I opened it. She says, I'm not sure if you remember. I said, are you kidding me? My first love. <laughs> well, the funny thing, I remembered her mom's number from 30 years ago because I used to call it all the time. And I dialed it and I said, Mrs. Wethington, this is Frank Dance. said, how are you? And I said, I feel so badly because Diane sent me this card and I haven't responded in three years. And I said, can I give her a call? I said, let me give her your number. She called me back and we've been together now for 19 years. That's so, that's a beautiful story. Well, I don't care how old you get. You're always going to be my kids. Yep. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm a proud father. I really am. And uh, whatever you need, I am here. Thank you. You lifted us up and uh, I couldn't have got through without you. And I want to thank you. When you ask people, they know the names of the killers, but they don't know the names of the victims. Mm -hmm. And I refuse to let that happen. Yep. I refuse. Every morning I wake up. Before my feet hit the ground, I recite the names of the 13. And that gives me a reason to do what I'm doing. You know, they're not going to die in vain. Rachel Scott, Daniel Rohrbaugh, Kyle Velasquez, Stephen Kernow, Cassie Bernal, Isaiah Scholes, Matthew Ketcher, Lauren Townsend, John Tomlin, Kelly Fleming, Daniel Mauser. Corey DePooter, and Coach Dave Sanders. Wow. What a guy. Is he angry over what happened to him in his first marriage, do you think? I can't speak for Frank if he was angry. I think the main emotion is guilt, that he's been struggling with guilt for 21 years not being there for his family and his daughter, guilt for all of us kiddos that went through this uh, tragedy. And I'll tell you a story, Nancy. After Columbine happened, he went to the elementary school and he told those kids, hi, I'm Frank DeAngelis and I'm the principal at Columbine High School and I'll be your principal when you come to Columbine High School. And he stayed there. He didn't retire until every kid in kindergarten graduated high school. They saw what happened in our community. And he knows everyone's name. He knows everyone. He, I think he has a photographic memory. You want to talk about a stand-up guy. Yeah, he's exceptional. But when I was also listening to him and he says, Dave Sanders came down the hall Dave Sanders saved our lives. My heart went out for you because I know how much you loved Dave Sanders. So when he talks about that, what's going through your mind? Just how horrific that must have been. It sounds like Mr. D saw Dave get shot. That just uh, hurts my soul. Brings back so many vivid memories. It's really hard to hear. I can't believe that he picked out that one key to get into the gymnasium that saved all those lives. And then when he talks about the library, you were going to be in the library that day. I was. If I hadn't have gotten the scholarship, I would have, you know, gone to the library. I was really into uh, the Internet was getting big. And so I was like, I love to look up my horoscopes and always just mess around on the computer and, and do, you know, uh, I just learned how to do PowerPoint presentations. And so I was messing around with that kind of stuff. But on that day, you got a scholarship. And so you decided to go to the cafeteria. And thank God. Thank God. Well, I thought I was going to go hang out with my friends, but that didn't happen. Amy, what was graduation like that year? Graduation was nationally televised. We knew it was going to be nationally televised. My family, being from Washington, was ecstatic to watch me graduate on TV. That was exciting for them. It was an incredibly hot day. It was supposed to be 
the most special day of your life. You're, you know, as 18 years old, I, I was supposed to be happy and excited, but there was so much sadness. One last thing. Let's talk about these fake videos that were out there. What was that about? Oh my gosh, there's so many fake videos and fake like people trying to mimic the perpetrators. So we we still get actually like a couple months ago, we we still get threats from people that will will threaten and say like you should have died the day of Columbine, I'm going to finish the job. Why? I have no idea. They're sick crazy people. I, I have no idea why this happens. I haven't gotten one in a couple of years, but I've gotten Facebook requests from both of the you know perpetrators from Columbine. There are people out there who are sick and hateful and completely crazy. And obsessed with Columbine. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. We are in Mr. Tonelli's classroom. He has thousands of pictures on his wall. There's so many pictures of all the different classes. Um, I'm actually not on this wall and it makes me sad, so I might send you a 40-year-old picture. <laughs> and I'll take it. I think one time a kid, I taught summer school, and a student at the end of summer school said, I just want you to know, because you can tell, so it tells you how boring I was that summer, that I counted up your pictures and there were 4,583 or something like that. And since that time, there's probably about 500 more. Wow. So right around 5,000 pictures. 5,000 pictures. Of former students, yeah. And they're all former students or some connection to the school, which is awesome. So this is over 20 years. This is over about 27, 25, 27 years, yeah. 25, so 27 years of... 27 years. Uh, I think I, the first year I didn't do it, and then just kind of started asking. Mr. Tonelli, I got a, I got a favor to ask. Can, yeah. can I go see the girls' basketball room? Yeah. I would yeah. love to show them. But it won't be there. We can go where it was at, but it's, that's it's one not of the there one, anymore. That's one of the one places. Hey, this is Jeannie Coyne. She's a math teacher. In Hi, nice Mama to meet Coyne. you. She's I'm so Mama sorry. Coyne I literally just put a recess in my house. <laughs> <laughs> both, her, both her kids came to Columbine, mm -hmm. but also she's Mama Coyne because all everybody loves her. She's no, like I'm a, just I'm old. She's a class. So <laughs> no, then you'd be Grandma Coyne, and you're grandma, not Grandma Coyne. I'm, on, I'm almost there. No, no. Well, welcome. Are you taking a little tour? We yeah, are. Yeah. yeah. Graduated. These guys graduated from Columbine in 1999. Yeah. So they're. Oh, it's so nice to meet you too. Of the school, like what does Columbine mean to you? Everything. I know that sounds generic, but it means everything. The experience that my kids had here and having them come home and yeah. just loving school. I'm old and I want to keep teaching because of Columbine. What grade do you teach? Um, ninth and 10th. Ninth and 10th, mm -hmm. awesome. Math? Yeah. Yes. Very yes. cool. And it just, honestly, the feeling you get Every day when I walk in this building, it's just, I'm so happy to be here. One, yeah. one hard, really hard day. But right. um, I mean, I had a fabulous high school experience. Sorry, Tom, I know you wanted like a one word answer, no, but you know me, I, I get going. <laughs> well, and I love this. That's <laughs> awesome. Oh, nice good, nice to meet you. Do you remember when you're walking here and there's all the lockers? Yeah, my locker was like right here, over here. Yeah. And you get here and you head to your left and you go down the hallway and you go to the gym, right? Yeah, yeah I, I just want to go see. I want to show you the basketball court and stuff. Oh my gosh. I spent so much time in this gym. Mr. Moore would be running, saying we are Columbine and... I think it's a boy ball though. Oh yeah. Oh man. Oh, man, I haven't played in so long. 
It's been a minute. Oh yeah, I made one. Woo! There we go. There's the money maker. This blows my mind. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm here with Mr. Tom Tonelli. He was my favorite teacher at Columbine. And I only had you my freshman year. I messed around a lot in your class. No, you were a great kid. <laughs> So I'm still teaching, I'm still in the same room. Yeah. You know, not only do I teach there, I went to high school there, student taught there. I live in the community, so I live right across the street. My kids go there, my daughter just graduated two years ago. I have a daughter that's a senior, I have a son that's a sophomore, and a son who's an eighth grade who will end up at Columbine too. So wow. this has really been part of my life. All my siblings went through Columbine. And you'll coach football. And I still coach football, yeah. You do and varsity? Yep, with all of the same guys, we've been together for 27 years. I want people to know just what a great community we have, and it didn't stop after Columbine happened. Yeah, I think maybe sometimes people have a misconception that the community was strong either before or it was strong after, and I think it was really strong both. It didn't start or stop on April 20th. I say all the time that I can't imagine a better job. I teach with all my best friends. I worked for Frank DeAngelis, who was like my dad. Yeah. And then the kids that just have this gigantic impact on you. You get into teaching, I think, because you feel like I'll make an impact and that's really grandiose and really nice and that's wonderful and stuff, but I never would have imagined just the impact kids would have on my life. The greatest lessons I've ever learned have been in that school. And, and most of them come from students. Thank you. I mean, you were just a really influential part of my learning. You were always there for us, and you made learning fun. I remember sitting in your classroom the day the O.J. Simpson verdict came out. You were like, this is a big part of history, and we've got to watch this. And, and you know, we were all just glued to the TV. It was the kids that held the school together. It really was. Were you at school that day? So I was at school that day, and I think what people don't understand about that day, unless they were there, is just the sheer chaos of the whole thing. It was just surreal. Every kid's got a different story. There's one kid with a gun. No, there's five kids with a gun. They're wearing this, they're wearing that. I don't think we ever really knew what was really going on during the moment of the whole thing. I remember praying maybe the simplest prayer there is, and that is, God, please help us. God, please help us. Mm -hmm. And just being incredibly terrified for our kids' safety, but also just being like, this cannot be happening. This is just not, this cannot be happening. Yeah. At our so, school. At, at, our school. At our school. Yeah, of all the places in the world. And the whole thing being just absolutely surreal. And then the days after, it was crazy. I yeah. mean, with the media, everyone kind of came together and there were places for us to go, all the churches, all of the gathering places. And I have forgotten a lot. It's been 21 years. Yeah. So what was it like for you when you saw your wife for the first time? So I, I didn't have any kids. My wife was actually finishing up graduate school. So I called right away. You know, there's no cell phones back then. So I, I got to a phone, I can't even remember how, called her office and just said, hey, I'm safe, don't worry about it. And then I didn't see her again till midnight that night or talk to her again. I think the hardest part for me, I'm 20, I don't know, 28 years old or whatever, I'm not 15, 16, 17, and 18. And, and that's not to say it's not crushing when you're 27, 28, or 29, but I think it was just, it was devastating to see what it was doing to our kids. It was devastating to think that our kids had to go through this. And then it was even more horrible to think that possibly someone from within our community did this. Yeah. You know, I think that was without a doubt the single hardest thing is mm -hmm. to think that it's someone that we knew, someone that was close to us. And it seems like from everything that I understand, the more that we find out and the more that was released from people that actually researched this mm -hmm. correctly or are experts in crime or psychology, those are the people that have said, look, this was not about athletes versus anybody else. It was about two very, very psychologically sick children. That I think is where I'm at now, you know, 20 years later. That takes a long time to get there yeah. because especially you're getting inundated with, oh no, no, this is why it happened and someone telling you. 
Every day these poor kids are going to school and there's media trucks. They're getting questioned all the time. Yeah, you're right. The media was everywhere. So much conflicting information. We were just trying to be normal kids. I'm so proud of how they navigated this thing. Yeah. How in the world did a bunch of 15, 16, and 17-year-old kids navigate this time in their life? It's amazing yeah. to me how well they did. And that's why I always say again, like, they're the glue. The faculty's there, the administration's there, the community's there. It's the kids that are the glue in this whole thing that keep us together. You know, I have a lot of underclassmen friends that were there, and I feel like you guys did a really good job at just helping with their mental wellness, helping with their journey back. That could not have been easy. And I always tell myself, I'm like, would I have wanted to go back? Yeah. Would, would you have? I, yes. Really? Yes. Do you think it would have been healthier for you to go back? Yes, I think yeah. it would have been healthier for me. One thing I was very upset that they did at the very beginning was they said, we're gonna make you go back to school at Chatfield. And I was one of the people, and I think most of us were in the thing, like, just end the semester. It's April, just end the semester. Why are you making us go back to school? But being back in school, going to Chatfield and going through that, I think was the best thing they could have done for us. And even though classes were completely abnormal, and even though you may not have gotten anything done in terms of curriculum, it was just so important for us to have everybody together again and to have some sense of normalcy. Yeah. I think that's why we worried so much about the class that was the class of 99, because they went to Chatfield, but they never came back to Columbine. And graduation occurred, and that was, I mean, that was a very, that was so difficult. It was so difficult. And graduation was a really hard day for me because my family flew in and it was televised and it was just, you know, I was emotionally exhausted. I remember just trying to be happy to graduate and I'm with my peers. But I remember at the end, after I got my diploma, my family just left. Mm -hmm. Like nobody greeted me afterwards and said, congratulations. Right. You know, it'll make me like really emotional, but like I didn't have that support system. And I don't fault my parents, you know, my grandma was really old and she wasn't feeling well and it was extremely hot that day and they up and left, but like everyone was greeting each other and like right. parents and families were taking pictures. So my boyfriend at the time, I remember his family just kind of grabbing me and taking pictures and stuff. So that helped. And then, you know, I went over to all my other friends, but I was just kind of jealous that yeah. they had all that support system and like I didn't have anybody there for me. My parents just wanted everything to kind of go back to normal. Okay, you graduated, like go on with your life. Yeah. I am pissed off about it. I'm sad. Because I would never have done that to my children. Ever. I'm their biggest fan. Yeah. My daughter got her permit yesterday and I'm just geeking out and taking pictures. And no one did that for me. I just needed them after Columbine. But I, you know, I didn't have that support, but I had support from friends and I have support now. I thank you for, for your support over the years. And I don't think I'd be the person I am today without, you know, the Columbine staff and faculty. You guys really were our mentors. My mom's dying from cancer. Oh, so, so um, yeah, my mom has stage four rectal cancer and I just never want to hurt her or hurt her feelings. But I definitely needed them and they weren't there. That is so you though. That's the kid I remember. Just like you do not want to, you do everything to make everybody happy. I do. Your teachers, your coaches, your family. That's just who you are. And that's why I said, like, with your heart, that's who you are in your heart, but you're right. I mean, in some ways, it's not always maybe necessarily the healthiest thing to always want to make everyone else yeah. happy at the cost of yourself. Well, Coach Sanders benched me a couple times. I didn't make him happy a few times. <laughs> <laughs> he, he would bench me for my attitude sometimes. What would you say is the hardest thing you've had to deal with over the past 21 years? The hardest thing to deal with is that what would have happened with those kids and what kind of, you know, not just career-wise and all that stuff, but like what, kind of, what kind of dads would they have been or moms would they have been, you know? And already, what kind of children were they? And their, their parents have just this incredible loss. You know, I turned 40 this Saturday. 
I just think of the 13 lives that they don't get to turn. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, you're over the hill now, but I'm so grateful for every single milestone that I've gotten to hit. I'm so grateful for my life. I would give anything to see Lauren Townsend yeah. be a mom. Yeah. Lauren was a student of mine that semester. And I love Lauren and think the world of Lauren and felt very honored that her parents asked me to speak at her service. Lauren was a 4.0 student and was valedictorian, but the bottom line is, that's not the best part about Lauren. I mean, you know that. Yeah. I mean, the best part about Lauren was that she was just so kind. So you kind. Know? And when I think about would she, would she have gone on and been a doctor or um, whatever she wanted to be? Absolutely. But the better thing Lauren would have been is a mom and a wife yeah. and just a friend. And yes. that was her heart. Yes. I lost my faith that day for a little while. Yeah. With reason, because you, I'm sure you were asking, how does God let this happen? Yeah. I carry, like even right now, I, in my pocket, I have a small little crucifix. And I remember holding it in my hand some days and you know, writing on the whiteboard and just being like, God, you gotta help us. You're our only hope right now. Yeah. And so in this world of darkness and despair, I would hold a cross. And so I would absolutely go there every single day. And it's a public school, but nobody's trying to proselytize to kids. But I'm telling you, like, the faith was deep in that school. It was deep before, and it was deep after, and it's deep now. I had to find my way back to my faith, and it's kind of like my calling, yeah. that this is what I need to do is to help other survivors. And there's a beauty in that. There's mm -hmm. a beauty in that. So when Columbine opened up in the fall, were you afraid to go back and teach? I know it might sound strange, but I've never been afraid there. It'd be presumptuous of me to say, oh gosh, everybody should return. They've got to decide what's best for them. And some of them saw stuff and went through stuff that I can't even imagine. And so those people who chose not to return or maybe even left education, I totally get it. But I will say I was surprised by the amount of teachers that came back. And I was surprised by the amount of students that came back, which I think is a real testament to the community that we have. Did any previous students come back to teach at Columbine? I teach social studies. There are 13 of us, seven graduated from Columbine High School. So over half our department is filled with Columbine teachers and five of the seven were there when it happened. Five of the seven. I don't even attribute it to that day. I attribute it to what Columbine means to so many people with or without the tragedy. What would you say is the most important thing you've learned through all of this? After 27 years of teaching and 27 years of being at Columbine, I would say not anecdotally, because it's really easy for me to say anecdotally, this is what kids need. They need you to care about them and they need to not worry so much about their futures. We tell kids that if they get into this entrance exam and they get into this college and they make a lot of money, they'll be happier. But the data shows that's not true at all. There's been extensive studies that show once you make about $75,000 a year, the level of happiness you have in your life levels off. It, it plateaus. If you look at the data of what makes people happy, it's all relationships. Not only are we telling kids something that is false, we're telling kids something that science proves is false. It's not just a feel good type of thing. And I'm not saying that kids shouldn't learn academically, that they shouldn't be challenged, that we shouldn't do everything we can to make sure that they achieve as much as they possibly can intellectually. But we are missing the mark mm -hmm. and we are setting them up for misery if we say these are the things that are going to make you happy because they are not going to make you happy. I think sadly, society is pressing kids towards this. It's really important to raise kiddos that are emotionally intelligent. I have a 15-year-old daughter that, you know, has struggled with an eating disorder, has struggled with depression and anxiety, and I can't help but look at me like, okay, well, she looks at her anxious mom. You know, she's like a product of me. I am glad that your daughter is a product of you. <laughs> Thanks. I really am, because even when you were 14 years old, you had a kind and gentle heart. Yeah. And you were competitive as all get out on the yeah. basketball court. <laughs> and that's super healthy. Yeah. But when it came to your friends and to how you treated people, I'm grateful that she's a product of you. Yeah. I'm grateful. Thank you. We are very proud of you. Thank you. Very proud of you. Thank you. Thanks for being here today.
on the next episode of Confronting Columbine. They put a whiteboard in the window that said one bleeding to death to try to get people to come to that science room. The helicopter zoomed in on it and it's just, it's still so surreal to think that they wrote that because of him, that in that room he was bleeding to death. For more information on The Rebels Project or to donate, please go to therebelsproject.org and see me there. Want to know more about the Confronting Podcast? Please follow us at Confronting Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for photos, additional content, and discussions about the podcast. We are all confronting something, and I look forward to continuing the discussion from our episodes over social media with all of you. If you enjoyed this one, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me. Confronting Columbine was produced and hosted by me, Amy Over. Executive produced by Nancy Glass, Andrea Gunning, Ben Fetterman, and Carrie Hartman. Produced by Julie Clark. Associate producer, Trey Morgan. Editing by senior audio editor, Matt Dovecchio. Editor, Drew Wallace and Dean Welsh. With production assistance from Megan Paisley and Brianna Fars. Other members of the production team include Kristen Melchiori, Pete Ward, and Natalie Thomas. Music and original composition by Mide Music. Confronting Columbine was produced by Glass Entertainment Group, Glass Podcast in partnership with Wondery. I'm Elena, an autopsy technician. And I'm Ash, a hairstylist. And we just love swapping stories about all of the morbid things that fascinate us. And if you do too, join us on our podcast, Morbid. It's a safe space to let your weirdo flag fly. On Morbid, we cover dark historical events, sinister science, unnerving paranormal events, and sordid high society murders. We also dive deep into the most notorious crimes in history. Our podcast is grounded in rigorous and painstaking research. We're also not afraid to read a (laughs) We keep it weird because a dash of snark is necessary to get through grotesque true tales of demented minds. So follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Morbid early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.